I'm Rob. I'm Joy. And you're listening to Key Light. All right. Welcome back to our 10th episode. Um, back from hiatus. Joy and I are both back in Boston. Yes. Just great, great to be here, although it is really hot today. It's so. unbearably hot. There's no AC in my apartment, so Ooh. I've been melting Blah. since I got here. So this is a little respite for you then. Yes. That's good. No, yeah. I just try to spend as little time there as possible because as much as I love my roommates, it's too hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing people did this summer to get out of the hot weather, see my segue here, is go see the double feature of The Century, probably, which is our topic for this episode, Barbenheimer. So we're going to be talking about Barbie, the movie, and Oppenheimer. Um, I think we're going to start with Barbie, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're starting with Barbie. So I guess my initial thoughts is that this is the thought I had after I did the double feature, and it will remain my initial thought forever. Oppenheimer shakes one's faith in humanity. Barbie restores it. You know, that's pretty good. That That's a great synopsis of, you know, how those two movies make you feel, <laughs> yeah. especially if you watch them right one after the other. Yeah. I think for me, Barbie is in one word just like a zinger. It's like there were so many little jabs after jabs at our current social structure and all the things that are wrong with this world. Um, but to imagine a world that is so radically different than ours in such a fundamental way and to do so on a big stage you know this is warner brothers biggest movie to date i think uh that's what makes this movie stand out um it puts this stuff into the public conscious in a bigger and bolder way than i think has ever been done you know at least in the past 20 years if not for a while so and oppenheimer is also there Oppenheimer's also there. Yeah, I'd say it's a Christopher Nolan classic. More brooding than and political than typical for Christopher Nolan new movies. Obviously, there's not as much action. Um, but it's a satisfying watch, I would say, for, you know, if you're interested in history or the scientific challenge or the just the raw power of, like, an atomic bomb. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, both are very diametrically different, but both very fun. Let's start with Barbie. This movie has a lot to talk about, but I want to say that as a guy watching this movie, it felt like kind of a forced awakening, you know, not only for understanding a little bit, just a little bit of the female experience, but also for understanding my own experience as a man and the foundations of, you know, how it how we think of what it means to be a man. In pop culture recently, we've been treated to some more unique male role models, which I really appreciate it, like, you know, George from Beef, maybe not a great example to follow, but, you know, a little bit unique, Um, and someone much better in Waymond from Everything Everywhere. And the next iteration of this progression is Ryan Gosling's spot-on performance of Ken in this movie. Yeah, and as someone who was raised as a woman watching this movie, um, I don't want to talk about Ken. I, <laughs> as much as his journey in the movie and learning about toxic masculinity and his understanding his true desire, as much as that's important, I want to talk about the true star of the film, which is Barbie. Okay. okay. And I think a lot of the conversation surrounding this movie is dominated by Ken, which is kind of hilariously ironic, given that the entire film is meant to be about Barbie and her relationship to femininity and learning how to exist in a world that tries to knock her down and control her at every turn. Greta Gerwig sets up this fantastic universe where the dolls themselves are reflections of who played with them, and as Gloria's mindset and life begins to grow more existential and like more like filled with dread, so do classic Barbies, and I think that's really fun. Yeah, that's totally fair to want to focus on Barbie. As a man watching this movie, you know that's probably the part that I should focus on more, and like I said, kind of a forced awakening to see what it's like for Gloria, being that 
secretary, right, in this world of Mattel and all those hilariously ironic uh, executives at Mattel. Uh, but the part of the movie that connects to me the most was f- with Ken, where he starts figuring out that those foundations of the male identity that we think of as, you know, being macho and being masculine and, you know, not crying and all of those kinds of things, all of those foundations are flawed and that he can choose another path and still be a man. He doesn't have to give up his manlyhood to do the things that he wants. And the movie does a good job of depicting that huge, you know, identity transformation as something that's messy and awkward because after all he's been through a lot you know they did get stepped on and ignored in barbie land which you know that's a whole nother thing but after feeling like second place for so long he discovers that it doesn't have to be that way and it brings back this new feeling of power to barbie land and the other kens that doesn't go so well though yeah And on the other side of things, Barbie is thriving at the beginning and is portrayed in a way that we don't often get to see female characters be. Barbie isn't afraid to embrace her classic feminine traits, and that goes for all the Barbies. She enjoys high heels, her favorite color is unapologetically pink, and she loves shopping and putting together new outfits, and she isn't villainized for it. Um, Quite the opposite, she's celebrated for those traits. Um, All of them want to be more like her. We so often see strong female characters having to sacrifice big parts of their femininity in favor of strength, but Gerwig insists that Barbie's strength comes from her strong relationship with her own feminine desires and being able to express those truthfully. Not only that, but every Barbie in Barbie Land is given the freedom to express themselves how they want, including Weird Barbie. Like, she's chill (laughs) being like that, and it's awesome because she's celebrated. Yeah, that freedom of expression is something that the Kens are all very new to when the patriarchy suddenly comes to town. And you can tell they don't really know how to express this independence on their own, you know, in their own way, right? Because the patriarchy is very structured and has a clear standard of what it means to be a man, you know, being a little bit annoying, not really talking politely to women or caring what they have to say in general, just being a macho guy. And it takes a duel with beach balls and tennis rackets, plus some pretty good choreography, some all-black outfits, and Ryan Gosling singing, which I forgot that he knows how to sing, but he knows how to sing. It takes all of that to realize that they are enough just being themselves, not falling in line with some standard of what it is to be a man. More importantly, Ken is forced to realize that he needs to be someone outside of his obsession with Barbie, you know? He needs to be his own person. He is, in fact, Kenuff without her. (laughs) Barbie isn't really telling women anything new about feminism or what it's like to exist as a woman or a feminine-presenting person in a patriarchal and male-dominated society, but it acts as this fantastic warning to everyone about the dangers of toxic masculinity seeping into places where women have traditionally held power or where, where women have crafted spaces for themselves and each other, even if allowing in that toxic masculinity was unintentional. Gerwig hits us over the head with a reminder after a reminder of a woman's place in modern society, even in Barbieland. After Ken, quote-unquote, invades, it's ultimately still up to Barbie to help him navigate his emotions, much like many women are forced to help their male partners navigate their emotions in fear of violent or unpleasant retribution mm-hmm. or just to make the relationship more healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, that's still some a part of the movie that I think definitely re- is representative of the real world and still a problem that I, I think, you know, I didn't really think of, um, but it's definitely... A real thing and I don't think this lesson of learning to let go of someone else uh, just applies to love struck you know helpless pathetic guys like Ken but it applies to everybody you know recognizing the ways that you force yourself to fall in line with societal expectations and being confident enough to break free of them 
is a lot easier said than done. And when you do it, it's going to be messy, like Ken, when he's just sniffling and crying in the dream house and he's all those awkward moments in there. That's intentional. But for a lot of guys, including me, this scene and the entire ending was like a great guide on how to just be, how to see all the possibilities there are for just existing, ex aside from the traditional tough guy, macho man, frat guy vibes that the Kens got sucked into when the patriarchy came to town. Yeah, and Barbie, even the ending, I think, just celebrating how all these women are returning to these positions of power, and the Kens, like, not, I guess not allowing, but showing that, oh, what they wanted wasn't power, what they wanted was just to be accepted. I think that was such a wonderful way to end. And Barbie ultimately serves as this bright reminder that femininity should be celebrated and awarding that toxic masculinity and unregulated male emotions will ultimately lead to the destruction of women's spaces, which seems like a harsh assessment, but that doesn't mean it's not true. So now on to Oppenheimer, a much less fun movie. Yeah, it's epic, I would say. Not fun, not, you know, you don't walk out of there and you're like, wow, that was so good. You're like, wow. That was, that was a lot, you know? It was, it's just epic in all the ways. The bomb, the timeline, the scale, the scientific depth, it's epic. It's just epic. But the best part of this movie is that it also takes time to show just how personal some of these majorly influential events were and remind us that this isn't just a movie about Oppenheimer the scientist, but also Oppenheimer the tortured man. In particular, I want to examine the very end of the movie, specifically the, conversa or the conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein with the award ceremony scene that's mixed in. I think that specific scene that's mixed in makes it much, makes the ending much more powerful. Yeah, I have my thoughts on Oppenheimer being a tortured man, but we will save that for our next section. Over the course of the film, we watch as Oppenheimer's actions, authority, and loyalty are questioned over and over again, both in the tribunal and during the actual research and building of the bomb. At the very end, we get to see the existence and life he's leading in the aftermath isn't ideal, but it's probably the best he's ever going to get. Yeah, definitely not ideal. The scene is interesting because Oppenheimer and his wife Catherine have very opposite dispositions during this during this scene. So basically, the scientists are coming up to them. You know, he has this award. It's, I think the timeline is maybe six or six to ten years after he gets his security clearance rejected in that crazy kangaroo court. So they're coming up to him, all these people who betrayed him in that court. And, you know, shaking his hand and smiling and congratulating him. And the scientist in question specifically is Edward Teller. He basically betrayed Oppenheimer, you know, comes up to him at the award ceremony. Oppenheimer still shakes his hand and smiles, but Catherine refuses his hand, refuses Teller completely and just glares at him. And to me, that was a really powerful moment, but not just in the way that you think. Oppenheimer was villainized in the scientific community for being reasonably cautious about continuing research into building weapons that have, the potential, that have the potential to decimate entire cities, which they did. Mm -hmm. It's a tension that we still struggle with today, finding a balance between scientific development and the depth of violence that comes with enacting those developments. Wanting to further develop hydrogen bomb technology isn't necessarily wrong within itself. It's been long discussed that if we manage to turn hydrogen into an energy source, it could revolutionize mm -hmm. uh, renewable energy production. But is it worth it if part of that research requires building a bomb that can end millions of lives in one fell swoop? Obviously, it's not that cut and dry, but the cost of innovation should always be considered, and Oppenheimer was trying to consider that cost. Yeah, 
but for that consideration and that second guessing of like, wait, maybe we should think about what we're gonna do and what it's gonna, what kind of effect it's gonna have. For that consideration, he was ousted from the scientific community. But that doesn't stop him, you know. During the award ceremony, he still shakes his betrayer's hands after all those years, after all that humiliation. In that moment, he could have used his hand and his acceptance for revenge and hurt, like Catherine did. He has more power than her, even, to deny them that comfort, those scientists, of feeling like they didn't really do anything wrong, right? But he still smiles and runs through all the formalities, looking maybe a little bit nervous and out of place at that ceremony because he desperately wants to be accepted into the community again. He needs to be part of that community and feel like he's still respected and made a valuable contribution to society. And that undertone is what makes the more personal, less epic parts of the movie all come together in my mind. Oppenheimer was so brilliant, but also so damn naive. The way I saw it, it was his own arrogance came back to bite him. For most of the film, we see Oppenheimer as this charming, charismatic, womanizer genius who has control at all times. Mm. But because he was the head of the project, he thought he could control everything that happened afterwards. But he naively didn't foresee that once something so powerful was built, there was no way anyone was going to let a single man determine what happened to it, no matter how genius he is. Yeah, and I think that kind of calls back to something we've talked about on this show before, where smart people think that because they're great at one thing, they're smart at everything else, too. And this isn't blind arrogance like, you know, we talked about in Glass Onion or with Elon Musk, but it's the same basic premise. Oppenheimer thought that he could have his cake and eat it too, but realized too late that he can't do that. And when you reflect on the movie with that in mind, it's easy to see that the personal aspects are what makes this movie great. Not the big explosions, not the twisty plot structure that's made to make Nolan feel smart or something, or the science talk. It's the story of Oppenheimer the man that makes this three hours feel satisfying. Yeah, totally agree. Much like Barbie, Oppenheimer serves as a reminder to humanity, though it reminds us of an entirely different subject, namely a massive crime against humanity that we continue to remember as an act of heroism. We see this course of events as Oppenheimer saw them, and we get to celebrate a deep love of science with groundbreaking development. Unfortunately, that development also meant mass destruction and mass casualty. I think the most important takeaway from Oppenheimer is to remember that this film is merely a story, one that leaves out a lot of historical context and the real danger posed by nuclear weapons. It's a beautiful story, yes, but it's just a story and a warning. So, after now all that serious stuff is done, we're going to talk about the cultural impact. So, Barbenheimer as an event is wow. a once-in-a-lifetime kind of like social, cultural event. We will never see anything like this again. PR managers and promotional teams will try to recreate this. Oh, yeah. But this is like once-in-a-lifetime internet magic that will not be able to be recreated. This and, is, yeah. Yeah. Twitter is, or X, oh, is going to bad. destroy anybody who tries to recreate this in like an artificial setting. Yeah, I think it's just sometimes hard to remember or to recognize in the moment, you know, that you're in a cultural event of significance. You know, I think especially with Gen AI, you know, happening very recently, which is also the same kind of vein of very significant events with Barbenheimer, you're like, oh, this is just like a fun thing that everybody decided to do. But the fact that everybody decided 
at once that this was something cool that was actually happening. And it wasn't even like planned. This was a Twitter joke. This was someone noticed they were being released on the same day, posted about it, and then the entire internet was like, no, yeah, we're going to turn this into an event. We're going to have outfit changes. Mm -hmm. We're going to watch, like, this is going to be a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it was something like 300,000 people actually did it on the day in the US, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, 300,000 people turned out for this event watching the movies back to back on release day which is crazy but 300,000 you know if that doesn't seem big enough to you then just consider looking up how much money Barbie and Oppenheimer made yeah and then you'll you'll see I actually wasn't planning on seeing Oppenheimer but I saw it because of Barbenheimer like I was across the world I was in Sydney Australia for study abroad (laughs) when Barbenheimer happened and all of us like as a little group we went to go see it it was awesome. Yeah, I literally went to a party for Barbenheimer before I had seen either movie. Yeah. That's how big of a thing it was. And I was like, yeah, of course I have to go. Yeah. Because that's the thing. It was, you know, I, I just keep coming back to the idea that it started with a meme, like a twit, an X post. I'm so back sorry. Back when it was still Twitter. Back when it was the, still Twitter. The site formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> I love it when the New York Times says that. Yeah, the yeah. site formerly known, and all in title case. It came from one post to being a whole thing that the entire world agreed, yeah, this is it. This is going to happen, you know? Yeah. And luckily enough, at my co-op, one of the big uh, leads in our, one of the big bosses in our brand team uh, used to be on the advertising uh, agency that worked on the Barbie campaign, which was super cool to hear about because you can see how it didn't start with, this movie that just somehow turned into an event you know remember when barbie used to be villainized and it used to be just like the cultural touchstone for everything that was bad i mean it wasn't villainized it was more like a result of toxic masculinity and patriarchal force and Mm -hmm. forcing Mm -hmm. women to sort of reject this like classically feminine thing and i think a lot of women also played that into that i certainly played into that as a kid where i was trying to reject everything like Mm -hmm. traditionally feminine just because i it was something that I wasn't really into, but I think it was a lot of just, like, internal misogyny and, and all of that stuff that just gets, like, pounded into your head as a kid. And so I don't think Barbie was ever purposely villainized. It was just a result of toxic masculinity and yeah. patriarchal influence. Yeah. Yeah, and when the the guy who worked on my company, who worked on that account for Barbie, was talking about, you know, 2012 or something it was when they started that account, that's when Barbie was rock bottom because, you know, millennial moms who had felt this experience the same thing that you're talking about right now Mm -hmm. they didn't want to give their kids barbies because they saw them as a tool for the patriarchy but when they saw their kids play with them they were like oh yes like you know you realize like it can be a tool for expressing your femininity and seeing that you don't have to sacrifice femininity of barbie of classic barbie while also having uh all the skills and the interests of you know the doctor barbie or the President Barbie, or the Lawyer Barbie. You know, all of those were represented in the movie, which I think is really cool. So I think that was just a nice little side note for me to get the context of how the transformation of Barbie's image started so long ago, and that, you know, it just, all. I think, I like to think that all of that hard work paid off, and they just got a little bit lucky with that X post, and it just blew up. All of it is, speaking of marketing though, like, Barbie had, like, a proper marketing campaign. Oppenheimer's marketing campaign was Barbie, which I think yeah, is the funniest thing ever. that is very true. Ever. But I truly think more people went to see Oppenheimer because of Barbie. 
Yeah, I yeah, would. Like, I would agree. I think when it's when it's a cultural event, you feel like you have to do yeah. it. Yeah, right. Like, normally, we talk about the cultural impact of the actual movies. No, we're talking about the cultural impact of the event. Like, I do have <laughs> thoughts on Oppenheimer itself, in that, like, I think it may have been irresponsible of Christopher Nolan to not include like the actual effects of the bomb. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sure, we portray Oppenheimer as this tortured man who regrets his choices, but he literally was like the direct influence that killed millions of people not only in japan with um hiroshima and nagasaki but also when they were testing it like they didn't warn the local communities around um los alamos like there were people living there before they moved all the scientists in they don't cover that in the movie and i think it's fine the way it is in the movie because it is ultimately a movie about oppenheimer as a man Mm -hmm. but i think there is a level of irresponsibility or is um not quite I get no like neglect from Christopher Nolan to not at least attempt to acknowledge that either within this actual script or just outside of that when speaking about the movie. Yeah. I think I remember I, I definitely agree. I think Oppenheimer the movie should not be someone's only reference to the atomic bomb because like you said, it leaves a lot out about the effects on the people that it got dropped on. But I do remember I read a New York Times interview uh, with Christopher Nolan, and he said he decided, I forget exactly why, but he consciously decided against, you know, showing that those, like, horrific scenes that, like, he didn't want to recreate, like, the carnage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, which I understand because, again, you know, it's about, this was based on a biography of Oppenheimer, not, like, you know, a historical ex- examination of the atomic bomb. So I agree. I, I'd say, yeah, it's definitely, I would, it makes sense why it's not in there. And I think that choice was correct in my opinion, but this should not be, you, you got to know what it did to people because it was just, I mean, it unlocked a whole new world of just destruction and of fear violence, and of violence. violence and then yeah. launches into the cold war. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It, that was it. Yeah, I I truly do, like, as a filmmaker myself, I truly do understand why Christopher Nolan made the choice that he did, and I don't think his choice was wrong, but I do think, like, just like Hamilton shouldn't be your only reference for what the Founding Fathers are like, Oppenheimer should not be mm-hmm. your only reference mm-hmm. to what World War II nuclear um, bomb production was like. Yeah, that's a, that's a great comparison with Hamilton, because, uh, you know makes them all seem really yeah. cool but you know you got to also know that they, they also still committed a lot of crimes and did a lot of really bad things. Yes. Barbenheimer in itself I think is I think just the pinnacle of the potential of modern day society and communication. Mm-hmm. Like this could not have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Like cuz we didn't have this like level of global communication and just like spreading news so quickly and like having everyone agree on this one mm-hmm. thing to do but now we're in this age of te- technology and globalization where we can have that and yeah a lot of really bad things happen because of it but so do really good things and i yeah. think it's important to remember that yeah, maybe globalization isn't so bad yeah no i think when i was thinking about the scale of this event you know a lot of people in textbooks you know sometimes when we would talk about the advent of social media They always like to say in the textbooks that social media can be used as a tool for organizing and for change, right? Because of that one time with the Arab Spring, it happened then. You know, we can do it. That means it can be so good. And then you go out into the real world and it's like all 
those platforms for, it feels like, are just destruction of other people and canceling. And it just feels like it's just cats and hating on everybody else. And I think maybe Barbenheimer did not create a social revolution in a country or, you know, the Middle East. But it was fun. But it was fun, and it was good, you know? It was good. And I think we need some positivity, so that's what that was about. Yeah. We need... We need more things like Barbenheimer. We don't need to recreate Barbenheimer one for one, but we need more positive examples of social media being used for good. Yes. Yeah. Also, if you haven't seen Barbenheimer, for one, why did you get so deep in this episode? We have so many spoilers. But please, <laughs> go see it. And if you already have, go see it again. Maybe just Barbie, because Oppenheimer's a lot. But yeah, go see it again. All right. Final section. Don't think we forgot this. Song of the week. My song of the week is Don't Play by Jungle. Uh... I actually just started listening to this today, but I'm going to listen to it, I know, for the next two weeks, every day. I so. think I just like heard of the band Jungle from my friend Riley, who really? sent like a video into our little Discord group chat. It's uh, Back on 74. Yeah. The yes. music video. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Oh, my God. I was just talking to someone about that today. Yeah. I was like, oh, I just started listening to this album. They were like, oh, you've got to watch the music videos. Yeah, no. I was like, I don't watch music videos that much, but apparently... Go watch this one. This one's fantastic. It's like a dance music video, but Mm -hmm. like everything is so on beat. This camera work is fantastic. All of the dancers are amazing. I will gush about this video. (laughs) What's your song? Anyway, so my turn. Uh, So my song of the week is Dogbird by Mads Buckley. She just released an album called uh, My Love is Sick a little while ago. I saw her in concert like two weeks ago here in Boston. Um, It was like a tiny little concert up in the Somerville, the the Crystal Ballroom. Mm, Yeah. mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's like a pretty small artist that got famous on TikTok for making like um, songs themed around anime characters. I'll we can talk about more off um, later. But yeah, she's like a cool little um, very indie artist. Uh, yeah, Dogbird, great song. And so yeah, that's all for us this time. So support women's rights and condemn men's war crimes. See we'll see you all next time. This episode was written by Joy Gu and Rob Pereira. Also edited by Joy Gu and produced and mixed by Rob Ferreira. Special thanks to the BU School of Communication for their studio and to Northeastern University. You can find Keylight on all podcasting platforms and make sure to be notified of new episodes by following our Instagram and Twitter accounts, both at KeylightPod. Thanks. Chasing stars and holding you I can't see the end, but we'll see it through